Well, good evening. Glad to be back with you tonight. Let's go ahead and get right into our Bible study on the life of Christ. So we had left off uh, talking about some of the miracles that Christ had performed, and then the Pharisees wanted more miracles. <laughs> the last time we discussed the life of Christ, the Pharisees had come to Christ and said, hey, if you really are who you claim to be, if you're really the Son of God, prove it. This is after Christ has just completed miracles, not long before, and has for some time, well over a year, if not closer to a year and a half, two years, has been performing miracles. And yet the Pharisees want more. And we left off where Christ looked to his, his disciples and he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They will destroy you. And they thought in their limited information and limited ability to comprehend everything Christ said, uh, they thought Christ was talking about food. They thought Christ meant we don't have enough food. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What does that mean? And only after some explanation did the disciples understand Christ was talking about the teaching of the Pharisees. So I want to tell you this. If you think you're a poor student, if you think sometimes God's trying to tell you something and you're just not getting it, and if you think you got to hear something told you multiple times before it finally clicks, don't worry, you're not alone. Even the apostles who walked with Christ, they too didn't always get it. Even when Christ was, in my opinion, fairly clear, the apostles still were a little confused. These are adult men. These are not children. These are men who had the benefit of asking Christ questions when they were confused. And even after his answers, there still seemed to be some confusion. So don't be overly hard on yourself if it takes you a, a little while to grasp some of the deep truths of God's word. I think what's more important than understanding deeply everything you're told every time you're told it is the relationship you have with Christ. You know, it's funny, when I, when I went to go visit my parents, they raised six kids. I'm one of six kids. They obviously knew what they were doing. We, we all survived. Uh, we all have pretty good lives. Most of us have made some pretty good choices. My parents didn't lose any of us along the way. And yet, I'm not exactly sure how that happened because I was watching my father interact with my youngest son, Drake. Drake's three and a half. And Drake uh, was given a remote-controlled car by my father. Uh, probably wasn't a good choice on his part. And so Drake is driving this car as fast as he can and running it into the furniture, which my dad didn't necessarily appreciate. So my dad thought he would train Drake how to drive this remote control car better. He said, Drake, you need to drive it and stop, drive it and stop, drive it and stop. And Drake would say, drive, stop, drive, stop, drive, stop, and then push the button and it would fly into furniture again. My dad was treating Drake like he was an adult. My dad was talking to him like he was 25 years old, and Drake's just smiling and repeating what my dad said and then doing exactly what he was doing beforehand. But you know what I did find was more helpful than my dad's attempt at speaking to my son was the time my father spent with my son. So even though he was trying to talk to him like he was you know, in his 20s, my dad was holding Drake. My dad was kneeling down and talking to Drake. My dad was smiling and watching Drake. And I can tell you, Drake did not understand nearly as much from my father as maybe my dad thought he did. <laughs> but Drake did get that he was loved. I, can, I could see that Drake felt very comfortable around my father. He felt very comfortable around my mom. And for a young child... I think what was more important for Drake was, do I sense that you love me? Do I sense that you care about me? More than do I understand what this man with gray hair is telling me about with this car. And we got to remember, God is our father. And, and God obviously communicates way better to us than my dad does to my three-year-old son. But sometimes we're the three-year-old boy. No matter how well he communicates, we're not getting it. But you know what? If you just open your eyes, open your heart, you will feel and you will sense that you are loved. And our relationship with God does not depend on a deep understanding of theology. You don't have to know every uh, amazing verse or every deep truth of God's word to know that God loves you and that he is looking to deepen his relationship with you. And I think a lot of Christians, we get so caught up on what do I know about God's word, what do I know about truth, that we forget what we already do know deeply, the love of God. The disciples, I have no doubt, 
understood the love of God. They felt the love of Christ. So even if they didn't always, always grasp what he was saying, they definitely grasped how he was loving. So today we're going to be talking about um, a couple of passages of Scripture that you're probably fairly familiar with. And I, I love how this first one starts off. Unfortunately, unlike the greatest stories, it doesn't really have a great ending uh, because this, this particular slide is only part of the story and it kind of transitions to a pretty hard ending, at least for one of the apostles. So we're in Matthew chapter 16. That's the gospel that I'll be looking at today. Matthew chapter 16, let's look at verse 13. Jesus, we're told, is uh, coming to the coast of Caesarea Philippi and he asks his disciples a question. He says to them, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? Who do people claim that I am? You noticed he didn't ask at least yet, who do you say I am? He'll ask that in verse 15. He wants to know what other people are saying about him. Now, that seems like an odd question. I'll tell you why, in my opinion. Number one, Christ knows what they're saying. He's God. He doesn't need to ask anyone what anyone thinks. He already knows before the apostles even considered this question. Number two, a lot of people have made it pretty clear what they felt about Christ. The, the Pharisees have outrightly said, you're a demon-possessed uh, reprobate, right? I mean, other people have said things out loud. They're not really trying to hide their opinion from Christ. So why is Christ asking this question? For the same reason, I, as a teacher, ask questions to the students that I already know the answer to. I ask them the questions not for my sake, but for their sake. I ask them questions when I could give them the answer. I could, Christ could have said, hey, here's what people say about me. But the best learning isn't just telling. The best learning is processing. And Christ understands that the human mind remembers better, thinks deeper, thinks critically when the learning is in, form, in the form of a question and requires interaction. And so Christ looks at them and says, who do men say that I am? And they give the answer. They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, reborn. Of course, we know that, right? Uh, that was stated earlier that some thought that was the case. Uh, Elias and others, Elias being Elijah, others, Jeremiah, the prophet, and, or one of the other prophets. Uh, basically, you're reincarnated, uh, a reincarnated prophet of old, or, or maybe even reincarnated John the Baptist. Now, it is interesting how the Jews seem to assume that Christ was a reincarnation. I mean, that's not in Jewish tradition. That's not Jewish theology. That these Jews are so confused and so in awe of Christ, they think there's only one answer for his miracles. He has to be reincarnated from one of the other prophets who could do miracles. And instead of the correct assumption that the Messiah also can do miracles, this is about the right time that the Messiah would be on earth, uh, Christ fits all of the prophecies of the Messiah. No, instead of coming to that conclusion, they're stepping outside of their theology to explain this phenomena, Jesus Christ. And they say, well, they basically think you're reincarnated from another amazing person in the past. So then Christ says, what do you think? This passage of Scripture warms my heart. You know, I've told my students many times, I'd rather you give me a wrong answer than no answer. I've explained to them that, like a car, and I'm sure you've said this before if you've been ever working with students or teaching, you know, it's hard to, you can't steer a car that's stopped. But if a car is moving, you can give us some direction. And I say to my class, I'd rather you raise your hand, and I know you're embarrassed to get the wrong answer in math or in Bible. And, you know, you're afraid the students will snicker or make fun of you. But I said, I'd rather you raise your hand and get it wrong so I can evaluate and see wh where you're at and direct you. And at least our class is moving forward. And I love that Simon Peter is always like, you know, ooh, ooh, pick me, pick me, right? Like he, he's on the forefront. This guy, um, I think, thought very highly of himself, yes. But I'll tell you what, Christ cured him of, the, of that by putting him in a position where he had to put action to his words. And Peter wasn't man enough, spiritually speaking, to follow through. And so, of course, you know, at the end of the Gospels, Peter realizes, I'm not who I thought I was, and it breaks him. And then Christ takes this broken man, Peter, and says, now let's work with what we've got. Peter's not there yet. Peter still, I think, thinks very highly of himself. So, he, you know, I, I got the answer here, Christ. And, and I love that Peter always wants to be involved, and I love that sometimes he gets it right, and when he gets it wrong, I really appreciate how Christ deals with Peter. That opens up my eyes 
to how we can interact with others as well. And so Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, verse 16. And then when Christ uh, honors Peter, when Christ commends Peter, he doesn't actually commend Peter, does he? If you read verse 17, what does Christ do? What does he say? He basically says, Peter, you're right, but you're not right because you're smart. You're not right because you know more than other people. He says, you're right because the Holy Spirit, the Father, has revealed this to you. So God gave you this answer. Don't think that you're a smart guy because you got it right, Peter. Even when I'm honoring you, let's make sure we give glory to God. And I really appreciate that answer that Christ gave. You know, a lot of us, we want to be right. We want to get the right answers about God and who he is, and we want to we know that what we believe is true. And I want to remind you that if you have wisdom, it was given to you by God. If you have a deeper knowledge of Scripture, it was given to you by God. If you, if you have a, an understanding of how to apply the Bible, it was given to you by God. You didn't come to this conclusion all on your own. If you're saved, you got the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, who is the great teacher, is just doing his job. So let's give glory and honor to God and thank him for whatever knowledge and wisdom that we've got. So we're going to move down now to verse 18. He says, I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All right. This is that controversial passage that has essentially created a, a uh, unbiblical style of leadership within the Roman Catholic Church. And that unbiblical style of leadership has seeped into other religions in some form or fashion, many of them Protestants who once were Catholics in their roots. This idea that Peter was the rock of the church and therefore had the last say on everything and then passed his authority on to the next, who passed on to the next, who passed on to the next. And, of course, you ended up with the popes who claim they are direct descendants spiritually uh, in the sense of the previous pope condoned me, who was condoned by the previous, condoned by the previous. Not that they're all born uh, you know, ancestors of Peter, but spiritual. And so... The Catholic Church believes that the Pope is the rock of the current church. And the Catholic Church also believes that verse 19 applies to the Pope, that the, the authority that God gave Peter rests on all future Peters, you might say. Now, again, it's not just the Catholic Church, is it? There's a lot of Baptists coming from good, you know, medium-sized to small-sized, back up to large-sized Baptist churches where if you were to be around the presence of a particular pastor for any amount of time, you'd walk away thinking, that guy thinks he's the Pope. <laughs> Let me tell you a story. I knew of a church one time. This is a true story. I'm not making this up. A church one time that uh, was going to host a banquet, um, a, a setting where a bunch of Christians were going to get together, and there was going to be you know, some teaching and some instruction and things like that, kind of like a, like a retreat slash like conference kind of thing, okay? They're going to host this. This church is going to host this. And there were multiple churches involved in this planning. I was not one of the ones involved in the planning. I was only told after the fact of the decision that was made. <laughs> and so one of the pastors, there, were, there was a group of pastors talking about this event that they were planning. One of the pastors came up with a great idea to help fund this event. And he said, you know, it would be great. It's, it's, a, it's like a win-win. We could, we could bring some money in and help the attendees during one of the meals Let's auction off one of the tables, or a bunch of tables, not just one, a bunch of tables. And we as pastors can sit at the tables, and people can buy seats to sit at us, and we'll call it uh, sitting at the pastor's feet. I was not at this meeting, so don't worry, I was not one to vote on it. And um, from my understanding, I only know of one pastor who spoke up and said, that's not happening, we're not doing that. We're not going to have any kind of sitting at the pastor's feet where we in some way represent Jesus in that manner and that people would pay to sit at a chair at our table and glean from our deep wisdom or that we would be so prideful as to believe we have the kind of wisdom worth paying for. But what disturbed me was, first of all, that it was said out loud. I mean, to think it is bad enough. To say it out loud as a feasible idea is just mind-boggling to me. 
And then the fact that it seems to me that only, from what I can tell, only one pastor of a table of pastors actually spoke out against it, that bothers me even more. I mean, we all have our foolish ideas. This one obviously is steeped in pride, and this pastor pridefully foolish verbalized it. I'm wondering why a group of pastors didn't say, what are you talking about, man? Where, where are you coming from? But it seemed, multiple seemed like, felt like that was a good idea, and only one said. And the, the reason I know this is a, a, an email was sent out. I was invited to this particular event. Email was sent out telling me the details and how this went down and how one pastor said it wasn't going to happen. I thought, well, that's a good thing. <laughs> Such as Catholics who believe that the leader of the church somehow holds the keys of God. I think there's a lot of pastors who think more of themselves than they are. I think there's a lot of pastors who believe that God's authority rests directly on them. And to say anything against them is to speak ill against God. Why would they think that? Read verse 19. And you'll know why they think that. Because what does verse 19 say? I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever shall be loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's the reason why. You know, it's very easy to misinterpret Scripture. Doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean you should. It's just easy. And I'll tell you how it's so easy to do. It's so easy to misinterpret Scripture when you filter it through your pride. Whenever you bring pride to the table, it will taint everything, even the interpretation of God's word. And so when you look at verse 19 through pride, you think, oh, that applies to me. It's also easy to misinterpret Scripture when, with paired with pride, you don't make the effort to compare Scripture with Scripture. And so pastors are men. They are fallible, capable of pride. And when they're not willing to do the work of comparing this text to other texts, and they're not willing to recognize their pride is twisting the truth of this verse, they are going to assume, as many have before them, and unfortunately, many will after them, believe that verse 19 applies to them. That God is giving his authority to the church, specifically the leaders of the church. The Catholic church says that's the pope, and the Baptist church says that's the pastor, and the Presbyterian church says that's the bishop, and whatever and whoever, right? They all have their different names, but they all believe through pride the same falsehood, that God was talking to us, giving us the keys of heaven, and allowing us to decide who was right or wrong, and we stood between God and and his people. Except God's not talking to us. God's talking specifically to Peter, generally the apostles, and it ends there. Not everything God said to the apostles was intended to be passed on to us, including the references of your faith will move mountains and you'll do amazing things and speak before the, 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 um, the magistrates and you won't know what to say, but I will give you the words and you will be tortured. Those words were for the apostles, the first century leaders, and God was foretelling and forewarning them that their choice to serve him as an apostle would not all be roses. There was going to be some tough times, but he would not leave them or forsake them. He would be with them and he would see them through, and he did. Doesn't mean he saw them through to victory on this earth. He saw them through to victory in eternal life as they were martyred and passed into the next life. I do not believe in any way, shape, or form that verse 19 applies to me. I believe God was saying, as apostles, you will be given great authority at the beginning of the church age. Why? Because the church will be just an infant, and in its infancy will need strong direction. But once the church has grown, it no longer needs the apostles to tell it what is right or wrong. The church will have the completed word of God to do that for them. But during the first century church, the apostles were the word of God. There was no completed word of God. They were the ones giving it along with the prophets God had ordained as well. But verse 18 is also a little perplexing. And I believe, personally, when he says, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, I believe that uh, Christ was speaking of himself, as do many theologians believe. Of course, if you're Catholic, you don't believe that. You believe this rock is referring to Peter. Now, Petros means rock. Peter, uh, you know, referred to as a rock earlier, but more of the little rock. And I don't believe Christ is saying, I'm going to build my church on a little rock. No, he's going to build his church on the rock. And the little rock is just a slight representation of the big rock, which we should all be. 
And so that's my take on this particular passage. And then um, we're going to go ahead and move on now to uh, verse number 20. Then he charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Looking now at immediately following this. From that time forth began Jesus to show his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things. But then at the end of that verse, it says, and be raised again the third day. Okay. How do the disciples not believe Christ will be risen from the dead when he's actually telling them, leading up to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and I will raise again three days? In fact, they understand Christ's statement, I will die. Peter is about to rebuke Christ for that statement. So they get what Christ is saying. They just don't like to hear it. Sometimes we don't believe because we don't know. How can you not how can you believe something you don't understand? How can you believe something you do not know? It's altogether different to understand it, to know it, and still say, I don't believe it. That is the lack of faith the disciples struggled with. They did know Christ's statement. He taught it to them. They did understand he was going to die. He warned them, and yet they did not believe it. We can't believe Christ is hanging on the cross. And when he dies, we can't believe uh, when we're told by some of the women that he rose from the dead. We can't believe that. They knew, they understood, they did not believe. That's a shame. But I'll tell you what, after Christ redirected them, after Christ realigned them and met with them in groups, large and small, some of them personally, seems he met with Peter at least once on a personal level. It seems to me from that time forth, the apostles believed what they knew to be true. What changed? Well, I can tell you one thing that changed. At the Pentecost, they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty big deal. That's a big change for the apostles. What else changed? The apostles were relying on their own belief as it fits Christ's teaching and their own comfort level. Okay, we believe Christ is God. We believe Christ is the Messiah. I'm just not comfortable with the idea that he's going to die, so I'm not going to believe that. I'm not comfortable that he would raise again from the dead, so I'm not going to believe that. So their, their belief system was affected by their comfort level. But once Christ rose from the dead and uh, dealt with them for 40 days later, I believe that comfort level was eliminated. And we see the apostles doing and saying amazing, amazingly courageous things that we do not see previous. One of your biggest enemies, this side of heaven, is pride. I believe that sincerely. Bible speaks much about that, pride. You want to know another one? Personal comfort. Your desire to be comfortable will cause you many heartaches, spiritual and emotional heartaches, because there is no greater heartache than to run from God. There is no greater heartache than to say, God, I believe you as long as it allows me to be comfortable. Because then God's going to shake things up in your life. Because if what's standing between you and spiritual success is your comfort, don't be shocked when he snatches it from you. <laughs> but I've known a lot of Christians who seem to make a lot of decisions not based off of truth, not based off of peace, not based off of God's direction. They are making their decisions based off what is comfortable for them. It is comfortable for me to stay even though I pretty sure this is not where I, will, I should be, but I'll stay anyways, and so they do. You know, it's no longer comfortable for me to be here. Pretty sure God called me here. Pretty sure that this is where God wants me, but it's kind of uncomfortable, so I'm going to leave to where it is comfortable. I'm not saying that staying or leaving is right or wrong. That's going to look different for every person in every situation. I'm saying don't let your comfort zone, your comfort level, be the determining factor for that choice. The disciples were not comfortable with Christ's statement, so much so that what does Peter do? We're told that Peter, verse 22, took him and began to rebuke him. That's a pretty strong word. Rebuke does not just mean, uh, God, uh, Christ, I'm not sure that you're right. It's, it's Christ, you are wrong. Christ, you are lying. Christ, you are mistaken. Christ, you are deceived. This is not going to happen. Well, of course, Peter doesn't get far in his rebuke. 
verse 23, Christ churned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Those things that you want. Those things that make you comfortable. Those things that make you happy. Those things you are seeking after. You're not seeking after the things of God. You're seeking after the things of man. And you want to fit me into your plan of what works best for man. No. I'm going to fit you into my plan of what works best for God's glory. Peter eventually gets it. But again, do you see how harsh Christ responds? And this is harsh. Calls him Satan. Then he says, you are not, you are, it is not you have offended me. You are an offense unto me. You are Satan and you are embarrassing me in front of all my friends. You're an embarrassment to me, Peter. Stop it. This is just after Peter was commended for speaking of Christ as the son of God. Isn't that often the way? We do something great for God. We do something uh, amazing for God, not because we are amazing, but because we were humble enough to let God work through us. And then our humility is thrown out the window because we look back and say, wow, did I just do that? Man, I really am something else. And then our pride starts to get in, and we no longer listen to God, and the next thing out of our mouth just destroys the thing we just said or did. Some time ago, I mean, this is a story that has been told so many times. I don't need to tell you in my experience, but there was a man that I knew. This was, this was 12 plus years ago. This man had moved into a town and had started a church from its infancy. And God had used this man to do some amazing things. And this, you know, this, this, he was a young man. I believe when everything fell apart, he was around my age. I, now, I want to say he's like late 30s. He was not an older man. He was very dynamic. He was a great personality, a fun guy. He was easy to get along with. And God used this man to start a work in a particular town, not here in Connecticut. I was not here at the time. And this man, with his dynamic personality and his, his love it's seen for God and for people, and I, I would say that he did love God and people, the church grew exponentially faster than anyone could have guessed. Got to a point where this church was what would have been called in that area a mega church. I was not in the thousands, but for this area, high hundreds of people, which was a pretty big deal for this small town. Had a beautiful facility, uh, had beautiful vehicles, the inside and outside, everything looked great. And then it seemed to me, I was a young man at the time, I was in my 20s, it seemed to me that the guy started letting it get to his head, that is, as is often the story. And then once it got to his head, he started drifting away from the power of God through his life and just using his own power in the life of others. Once he strayed from God and once he started believing himself better than others, he started justifying certain actions. I never spoke with him personally about how he could justify those actions, but it was obvious that he did. No man in that position does the things that he did without justifying it to himself. I just know that because I know human nature. Came to find out years had gone in this man's life as a pastor where he was becoming physically intimate with multiple women in his own church. Again, this is a story so common, it's like, why am I even saying this, right? Isn't that saddening how it is so common? You're not even shocked to hear that. This man was once young who loved God and loved people. This young man was once humble enough to let God use him in spite of himself. And then once this young man stopped in his middle age, 30s, and started looking around, his eyes got off of God onto the things that had been accomplished by God. And instead of giving glory to God, he started receiving it for himself. And that was the beginning of the end for this man. I, unfortunately, got to witness the fall of this man, his downfall, you might say, and exit from the church, exit from the ministry, if I'm not mistaken. I believe his wife divorced him. And all the things that he had lived for, all the things he'd worked for, were lost. I don't know what happened to that church. They obviously were not doing as well as they were when he was doing right, or at least claiming to do right. I don't know to this day how that church is doing. That was so long ago. But I can tell you a lot of people left that church, 
and probably many of them never went back to a church ever again. Because this man, who was once doing right, let it get to his head, and then did what he wanted. God rebuked him, obviously, publicly. You are an offense to me. And in his offense, he was cast down from his position of a spiritual leader and lived in shame. To this day, I don't know where that man is now. He's going to be in his 50s by now. I'm not sure where he is. But what a sad story. That was not the end of Peter's journey. It was just the end of this particular chapter. <laughs> Doesn't end well for Peter in this chapter, you might say, of his life. Where it ends with him being called Satan. What got in the way? Pride. What allowed that pride to get in the way? His comfort level. He wanted what he wanted. He was seeking the things of man. Don't let that be the case for you. Christ goes on to say, though, and I do love this, how Christ doesn't end the conversation with Peter. And then, all right, guys, let's go. And then silently walks away as Peter, you know, steps to the back and the rest of the apostles walk forward, right? And Peter broods like 20 feet behind everyone. No, Christ deals with Peter and then quickly transitions to something different. I think that that is a great uh, idea for us. When I am dealing with the student, I try not to let it be the last thing that's going on between us, right? I try not to, be to let it be the last conversation of the day, if at all possible. I try not to let it be the last part of the class. If, if I have to address something in class with a student, I try to kind of let it be in the first part or the middle, if at all possible, so I can move on and end the class on a high note and look for opportunities to encourage or recognize that student later so it doesn't end with them going home. The last thing they're hearing from Pastor Russ is a rebuke. And now they got to sleep on that all night. That just festers. So Christ rebukes Peter and then, verse 24, said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny my, himself. What does that mean? Humility. Humility. Why is he saying that? Because Peter is just showing pride. And take up his cross. What does that mean? Break out of your comfort zone. Because Peter was seeking his own comfort. And follow me. What does that mean? Peter wanted what men wanted. Christ is saying, want what I want. Right here, this famous verse, take up your cross, follow me, is a direct response to what Peter just did. This command is the opposite of what Peter was doing. Deny yourself. Be humble. Take up your cross. Be willing to be uncomfortable. Follow me. Seek me, not men. What I tell you. The greatest destruction to many of us is our pride, but the second greatest is our desire to be comfortable. Remember the parable of the sower and the seeds? One seed fell to the wayside, and the ravens plucked it up, and that seed represented those who heard the word of God, never got saved, and uh, didn't, didn't accept truth, and it was plucked from their thoughts and their hearts by Satan or his demons before they could dwell on it. Then there was the, the, the seed that fell into the thorny ground. You remember that one? And the thorny ground was the cares of this world Choking away the desire to follow God. Yeah, there was the seed in the rocky ground where there, there weren't roots deep enough. There wasn't mentorship and disciple deep enough to help them thrive. But I want to talk about the one where the weeds choked it away. The cares of this life, the desire to be comfortable, replaced the desire to follow Christ. Not everyone falls because they're prideful. Not everyone falls because they're wicked. Not everyone falls because they're deceived or confused, many fall because they just don't want to be uncomfortable. So, moving on, he says in verse number 26, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. You know, there's some who would say, well, I don't need to really step out of my comfort zone. I don't have to really worry about following Christ. My soul is secure. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. So I'm not worried about my soul. All right, well, let's change this verse and look at it a different way. What would you give in exchange for a soul, any soul? How about a soul of one you love? What would you give for that soul? I know a man... This person does not go at our church. No one in this church knows this man. He's an older man. He grew up in a good, strong Christian home. He knew truth. In fact, his parents were in the ministry. He grew up a, a child of uh, missionaries. He was actually a missionary kid. 
and got a little jaded towards the ministry. I imagine things happened to his family, things happened to his parents that, that affected how he felt about ministry. You know, when you're in the thick of it, you see a lot more maybe than others do. It affected him pretty hard. He ended up running from God at a young age. I mean, I think it was like 20, something like that, like, you know, young 20s, and kept running from God. He was saved. He got saved at a young age. He, he never really doubted his salvation from my understanding. He knew he was saved. He just didn't live like it. But you know what he did? He had kids. And those kids were never trained to love God. Those kids were never trained to really know God. Why? Because this man saved, his soul secure, chose to not be this chapter, to not be a lover of God, to not be one willing to seek God. So even though his soul was secure, his children's souls were not. And he raised his children apart from God. If I, if I remember correctly, uh, they pretty much destroyed lives. I mean, prison was involved in the lives of some of his kids and, of course, divorces and just some horrible things. That, that just, it seemed everything that his kids do just ended up horribly. <laughs> and now, to my understanding, he, he uh, as he got to his older age, began to recognize, you know, God is pretty amazing. And I've made a mess of my life. And this man decided to try to get right with God and is made attempts to do so. But by that point, his kids were already lost. I'm not saying the kids can't be saved. I'm not saying they wouldn't be saved. A whole lot harder to convince adult children that at that age of a loving God when you've basically lived a whole life apart from this God you claim to love. He's going to have a very difficult journey of that. And you know, when I look at Scripture, I'm reminded of a very similar story with a man named Solomon. Started off very strong, a teacher of God, a wisdom, a man known for his wisdom. Lived his middle life running from God, right? Chasing women, chasing idols, chasing, he says in Ecclesiastes, literally, you name it, he chased it. He actually says that, like, went after everything but God during his middle age. And then at the end of his age, he finally comes back to recognizing, what was I thinking? He says, there's only one purpose in life, live for God. That's what he says at the end of Ecclesiastes, fear God, keep his commandments. That's the only thing. That's the greatest thing. By then, his children were already adults. You read the stories that follow regarding his kingdom, ran by his child, and some of the things that happened with his children, chaos. You see, it's not just your soul that you need to consider, is it? The souls of those you know the souls of those you love, the souls who love you, what would you pay for their souls? I have five kids. I would give up everything, including my life, if I had to pay for my child's soul, which I'm so glad I don't. But if I did, there is nothing I wouldn't pay or give to secure the eternal souls of my kids. Knowing that I can't pay for those souls knowing that that's not my option or choice, I have decided to follow Jesus closely in the hope that the souls of my children would do the same. I've also made that effort for the souls of the kids here at Mid-State Christian Academy, for the souls of those here at Meriden Hills Baptist Church. What keeps me straight? What keeps me from letting pride take over and by the way, pride, when it takes over, doesn't look the same in every person's life. Just because someone's prideful doesn't mean they're going to sleep around with women like that young pastor did. For him, obviously, that's where it worked out for him. For others, pride taking over would result in something altogether different, embezzlement, right? I, I deserve this. This money belongs to me. Pride could result in a variety of destructive patterns. It doesn't always have to be women. So what is it that keeps me humble? What is it that keeps me from pride? Well, I can tell you, you know, none of us are purely without it. It is a battle that I have constantly. What is it that keeps me fighting that battle? It's not my soul. My soul's secure. I'm not worried about my soul. I'm going to heaven. It doesn't matter what I do at this point, this side of heaven. I know where I'm going. So what is it? It's your souls. It's the souls of your children. The souls of those visitors that walk into our building here at Meriden Hills. The souls of this community who I have made a valiant effort to open myself up and be very transparent to and be available to them. It is the souls of this community that I care about. That's what keeps me straight. It's the souls of the students here at Mid-State Christian Academy who I have no doubt are watching me extremely closely. Extremely. 
sometimes I feel their eyes on me when I'm at the desk or I'm looking, sometimes I'm zoning out and then I turn around and a student's staring at me, probably wondering, what are you staring at? I'm like, I'm staring at nothing. I'm staring out the window because I'm so like, I, I'm so overwhelmed. I just need to like, you know, take a vacation for like two minutes out that window, right? So I feel their eyes on me. I know they're watching me. And so it's their souls that keep me straight. Why? Because their souls are all so very valuable. Every single one of them. But when we stop remembering the souls of others. And when we are confident in the direction of our own soul, our pride is given a clear runway to lift off and take us into high places. Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of gas in that engine, and you are going to crash. And when you do, whatever passengers are on that plane will suffer with you. Companion of fools will be destroyed. And when you let pride take your feet off the ground, you are a fool. And those with you are your companions. I am not a perfect man. I truly, truly wish that I was. Sometimes I wonder how great it would be to be given a life this side of heaven and be perfect. <laughs> I know it's not going to happen. But what keeps me from complete destruction, what keeps me from just pride overtaking my life is the desire to not destroy yours. What keeps you going? What keeps you from pride? What keeps you from self-destruction? Our next story, Transfiguration. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 17. After six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother. How would you like to do that? It, it inspired scripture. You're still the brother of James. <laughs> come on, man. Come on, God. You know, I'm, I'm John. I'm my own man, right? No, you're the brother of James. Okay, so bringeth them up on a high mountain apart and was transfigured before them. What does that mean? Glorified. Presented in his, his state of glory, similar to that as described in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. His face shines as the sun, Revelation chapter 1. His, his raiment white as the light, Revelation chapter 1, right? He basically is giving a, a quick glimpse into what he will look like in his glorified state, as described in Revelation chapter 1. And then two appear with him, Moses and Elias, who is Elijah. Elijah is the Old Testament name. Elias is the, is the Greek version, New Testament name for Elijah. Then answered Peter, oh, Peter, come on, man. <laughs> you know, let someone else speak for a while, right? As I said, I love that he keeps talking, but unfortunately for him in this text, it's another foot-in-mouth scenario. And Peter says, Lord, it is good for us to be here if thou wilt let us make three tabernacles. What's a tabernacle? A memorial. Uh, could a tabernacle be a place of worship? Yes, it could be, but it's not necessarily Peter's not saying, let's build a temple to these guys and worship them. That's not really what he's saying here. A tabernacle was more so uh, a stones could be tabernacle. It could be a pile of stones as a memory, kind of like a monument. He's basically saying, let's build three monuments. Hmm. Christ does not respond well to that one either. <laughs> We're told that uh, verse 5, I'm sorry, not Christ, God the Father, steps in and takes care of this one, excuse me. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. When the disciples heard it, fell on their face and were afraid. Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man but Jesus only. And in verse 9, as they go down the mountain, Jesus says, don't tell anyone what you saw until I'm dead. All right. What's the point of this text, and how does it apply to us today? Just today, this very day, Pastor John and I were talking. We talk a lot about a lot of things. And Pastor John, in our conversation, said, you know, Russ, there was a camp when I was young I went to. And he said, at this camp... There was a high hill, a high mountain, where there were monuments made for three men who had done some great work for the church, for the ministry, for the cause of Christ. And these monuments, I think he said there was like plaques or something. These monuments 
were placed on the top of this high hill. And he said, the campers were brought up to this hill and were told of the greatness of these men. And then these campers were informed of how they should themselves respect and honor the greatness of God's men. They're monuments. And the campers are brought to these monuments and told how they should respond to these monuments. And Pastor John, today, this day, he told me, he said, you know, I got to thinking, what about Christ? Like the time they were up at that mountain, Christ was not mentioned, just the monuments of these three men. And I said, John, that's a, wow. I mean, I forget what I said to him, but I was thinking, that's a great question. What about Christ? Like, that makes sense. Like, that would be the obvious question for me. What about Christ? And that's exactly what's going on here. Peter is not saying Christ shouldn't be recognized. Peter is saying, let's lift up monuments of other men on the same level with Christ, on the mountaintop, right? The Mount of Transfiguration. Some believe Mount Tabor, which is a pretty high mountain. We don't know what mount. We just know it's a mount, the mount. We don't know which one. The high mountain. Let's go to the highest place and put some monuments up of the men that we should remember, honor, and respect. Remembering at all times that without these men, would we even be saved? Without these men, would the church even be the church? Without these men, where would God's people be without these men? Well, I can tell you they'd be in the arms of Christ. That's who they belong to, and that's whose job it is to make sure they are given the instruction with these men or other men. Let's definitely not be setting up statues and monuments to these men. That's disturbing on many levels. And yet, that's a pretty common thing to do in a lot of churches. Maybe not a statue, that's maybe a little overkill, although I have heard of that happening at colleges and other places where the statue of a man of God is posted, not in the form of a historical event, you know, a statue of a, a person uh, reminding us, you know, over in Boston of, of some great men and women courageously of history. No, these are statues of spiritual figures intended to bring spiritual awe, not uh, thoughtful, critical thinking regarding our history, <laughs> And these spiritual statues are monuments to men. And when Peter wanted to do that, God calls him out and says, not happening, Peter. This is Jesus. Listen to him. This is Jesus. Look to him. Forget Elijah and Moses. They are just pawns. They are not God. And I can tell you, I'm not aware of these three monuments. I don't know any of these men personally. Whatever these, whoever these monuments represented that Pastor John mentioned, uh, I would not have gone to their churches or ever been under their preaching or teaching. I could care less who these guys are. But even if they were the greatest men, I can tell you, one, they weren't as great as John the Baptist. Two, they fall far, fall far short of the glory of God. And that I know because of Scripture. Jesus said, no man has ever been greater than John the Baptist. Uh, now, he does state that all others after John the Baptist will be greater. He states that because of the Holy Spirit in their lives, not because they themselves will be amazing people beyond John the Baptist, but because they will have the Holy Spirit, who John the Baptist did not. But two, Jesus Christ himself, through inspiration of Scripture, tells us in Romans chapter 3, we all fall short of the glory of God. Why are we putting up monuments for ourselves when we don't come close to God? If we're going to have any kind of recognition or monumental memory, let's put it towards Christ. I'm not saying statues and images of Christ needs to be placed everywhere, but, it, you know, monuments don't have to be pictures. Monuments don't have to be statues, anything that's a reminder. Put up monuments in your life. Put up reminders in your life, but not of the men and women who God has used in your life. Put up the reminders in your life of the God who used them, not the people who were used. You don't remember anything about me. Remember the God who used me. You can forget about me, and I'll be completely happy. I, I do not care in the least if I'm remembered. I just sent out an email to our students in our school yesterday. And in the email, I told the parents that as a math teacher, I'm going to end with this, and we'll, we'll wrap things up. I said, as a math teacher, it's not really my desire that the students remember algebra. And I said, they, many of them will not. I said, I want them to remember how to think. As an algebra teacher, my job is to teach them how to think, not to remember algebra, because the truth is most of them will never use it. I know that. I'm a realist. 
They'll use a calculator when they need to. But they'll always need to know how to think. I said, I don't even care. In the email, I said, I don't, even, I don't need them to remember me. I don't, they, don't, they may not need to remember you know, who Pastor Russ is. It doesn't matter to me. I want them to remember how to think. That's the goal. As a Bible teacher, I sent a similar email to my Bible class stating they don't need to remember me. They don't need to remember uh, who I was or even what I did in their life. Even what I taught, they don't need to remember that. I want them to remember how to think. And in Bible class, I'm going to teach them how to think critically regarding truth. And when I say that, I really mean that. There have been a lot of great men and women, great only because they served a great God. And we don't know their names, but we do know the God who used them. And that is enough. My heart is that when visitors come to Meriden Hills, they do not sense any pride from any people. That might be far-fetched. That might be unrealistic. So at the very least, my desire is they do not see or sense any pride from the leaders of this church. I can't guarantee that every person who comes to this church will be humble. How can I control that? But I can most definitely keep an eye on the leaders that are established in this church. And either humility will be in them or their position of leadership will be removed. Because I don't want people coming to Meriden Hills and saying, look at him, look at her. I want people coming here and saying, look at God. And it sure is amazing that he would use someone like Russ. I wholeheartedly agree. Let's stop making monuments to men. And let's remember Jesus is the Son of God. Thank you for joining us tonight, and I hope that you will continue with us next Wednesday as we move on to the next story of the life of Christ.